It's good to see you guys this morning. My name's Tony. I have the privilege of serving as pastor here at Wellspring. Uh, if you're new or visiting, checking us out, we are glad you are here. Uh, if you're a youth uh, or a kid and you would like to hang out with some other kids, if you're in elementary school, Miss Jessica's over there. So you're going to go over to her and we have an awesome time for the kids. If you're a youth, I think the youth are playing kickball. Hanson's right there. So if you, they're going to go, it's the fifth Sunday. So on the fifth Sunday, the youth are going to hang out and do something fun together. Uh, so if you want to hang out with him, he's over by the door. Uh, feel free to join him. All right. So if you're new visiting, checking us out, we are going through the gospel of John. We're in chapter six and we've been sort of slowly making our way through the gospel. And I want to begin with a story this morning. So as many of you know, I spent a lot of time traveling in my 20s. And one summer, I spent a fair amount of time in Greece and Turkey. I was working for a consulting company, and I spent a lot of that time in Turkey. And one weekend, I had some time, so I went to Ephesus. When I was in Ephesus, got to see they have this huge theater. It just so happened the day I was there, Elton John was playing. So I got to see Elton John in the Ephesus theater, it was, it was actually pretty awesome. Um, and afterwards, or during the performance, there was a Turkish couple sitting next to us, and they were just really kind, befriending us, kind of got to know them a little bit. And then afterward, they invited us to go with them to their vineyard, which they had, which was outside of Ephesus a little bit. There's a few of us that had gotten to know them that were sitting together, and so we all went to this vineyard. And the dad, you know, invited us and he brings us out and he had like a whole staff there and they just laid out this huge feast. Now, if you've ever been in a Middle Eastern context, like at the center of the feast is the bread, right? Because the bread is what you grab that, that you then use to eat the hummus, hummus and the baba ganoush and the lamb. You sort of use the bread as both mop and fork to eat everything on the table. And it was amazing. It was this experience where this guy invited us in. Then we got to, through the bread at the center of the table, eat everything, and everyone experienced this wonderful sense of life. Right? Our bodies were fed with the food, but there were also this social experience of being together, this sort of real party atmosphere that was really life-giving. Now, I share this story because in chapter 6, we're constantly hearing this phrase, or constantly dealing with the idea of bread. Right? Jesus makes bread in the wilderness. He says he is the bread of life. And sometimes in our world, we think of like our favorite bakery, maybe Pavel's or Paris Bakery. You think the baguette you get there, you know, something like this. You know, you think of that piece of bread, right? Is maybe like a side to the dish that you're going to have for dinner. Or maybe you think in terms of Trader Joe's and sliced bread that you put in the toaster and it pops up and you put a little butter and jam or whatever on it. But in a first century Middle Eastern context, when he is talking about bread, he's thinking about the center of a feast that leads to, you know, the bread becomes a means of enjoying all the flavors on the table. Now, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we're actually at week four in chapter six uh, through the Gospel of John. It's a long chapter with lots of moving pieces. So if you haven't been here, let me do a quick recap begins with Jesus feeding a crowd of somewhere between 10 and 15,000 people out in the wilderness on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So they're on the northeast side of, there should be a, 
screen. There we go. Northeast side, uh, probably to the east of Bethsaida. Uh, they are so excited because they think of this as, you know, reminds them of Moses, right? And the Exodus, it's all taking place in the context of Passover when God frees the Hebrew slaves from oppression in Egypt. And then there's manna, right? That God provides the people manna. This is daily bread in the wilderness, right? He provides daily bread. And they think, whoa, Jesus is providing us bread, just like what happened in the Exodus. This is awesome. Let's make him king. Jesus is like, it's not my time. So he goes in hiding. The disciples, night comes, right? And this is the second sermon, is the disciples get on a boat and they go from the northeast corner over to Capernaum, right? In the middle of that, there's this massive storm. Jesus walks on water, meets them in the middle of the storm. The storm decreases and they arrive and convert home together. Now, there's a bunch of people that ate the bread on the northeast side that don't know where Jesus went or where the disciples went. And they think, well, he probably went back to Capernaum. So they go back to Capernaum and then they meet him. This is last week's sermon, right? Now they go through the first part of this dialogue, back and forth, back and forth. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shouldn't be, won't be hungry. Right? Whoever comes to me will never be thirsty again. That's kind of the big arc of John 6. Now, last week what we did is we divided it into question and answers in this dialogue, and I think it's the easiest way to tackle the text today too. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of do two primary texts, two primary chunks, and kind of work our way through it. Just as a forewarning, it's a little dense. I'm going to do my best to make this as simple and digestible, food, food metaphor intended, um, as possible so you can devour it. Um, I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible, but it's, it's just a lot of moving parts, and it's built on this other story or three different sermons that have happened so far. So I'll do my best to make it intelligible. Hopefully it is. All right, this is part one. This is grumbling. All right, so Jesus says he's the bread of life, and then they start grumbling. It says, at this, the Jews then began to grumble about him. But as he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who has sent me draws them. And I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. All right, so this conversation starts with grumbling. You know, there's some, some validity to this, right? How can Jesus say he came down from heaven? They see he is the son of a carpenter. They see he's here. Who comes down from heaven? God alone, right? Heaven is the dwelling of God. It's not some place in the clouds where small people play harps and float, right? Heaven is the dwelling place of God. And they also know what comes down from heaven. Manna is the thing that comes down from heaven, right? If you go to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 16, the Lord says to Moses, I will raid down what? Bread from heaven. 
Right? So this very language is echoing back to the Exodus, this idea of God freeing his people and then feeding them with the daily bread they need, this sense of dependence. Now, this idea of grumbling. Now, on first glance, you're like, well, this makes sense. It sort of makes sense given the context of what's happening. Jesus is saying he's bread. They're like, what? I'm going to grumble. There's actually way more going on here. So John is consistently in John 6 echoing back to the Exodus. If you remember the Exodus, what do the people do all the time once they get into the wilderness? Grumble. Exodus 15, they grumble about what they have to drink. Exodus 16, their lack of bread. Exodus 17, water again. At their hardships in the desert, Numbers 11. At the difficulties of occupying the promised land, Numbers 14. Even against the manna in Numbers 11. Lots of grumbling. So what is John doing? He's saying, hey, guys, you're grumbling, but remember, this is echoing back. Something's repeating, right? Just as the people in the Exodus that were freed from Pharaoh, the Red Sea is parted. It's this amazing experience. What do they do? They grumble. And Jesus is saying consistently in John 6, hey, there is a new Exodus about. God is going to set his people free. And what's happening here? You're grumbling. It's happening again. Now mirrored with the grumbling in the Exodus is this idea of God choosing. And right, we see this in the text, right? Verse, what is it? Verse 44 or verse 43, stop grumbling. Verse 44, no one comes to me unless the father who sent me draws them. So you have this idea of grumbling with God choosing, which comes up in the Exodus all the time. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest. It was because God, it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his commandment of love, covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. So what do we have here? We have two echoes back. You have this echo back to grumbling and now you have this echo back to God choosing, right? Both of which Jesus reinforces. Verse 43, stop grumbling. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. God says, I want you to come near me. I choose you. I draw you. I invite you. Jesus said something similar last week, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father is giving these ones to Jesus, and Jesus says, I will never cast them out, right? There's grumbling. God is the one who chooses and draws people to himself, right? That's verse 43 and 44, right? Just those first two lines. Now Jesus jumps into, in verse 45, this quote from Isaiah. This is how the quote, this is what, this is what John writes. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Now I'm going to read Isaiah 54 because there's a really important passage that speaks into this first century context. This is it. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, 
nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not comforted, I will rebuild you with the stones of turquoise. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, and all your walls of precious stone. All your children will be taught by the Lord and will be great in their peace. Okay, big picture. God is saying to this people who are in exile, right? They're again oppressed by Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, this is the Egypt, this is the Exodus, right? Now he's saying first century, they're again oppressed by Rome. They're in exile. Even though they're in their homeland, Rome is oppressing them. And he is saying to them, hey, I am going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to initiate a new Exodus, kicking Rome out. I'm going to rebuild your walls, which have been broken down. And when I bring you to myself, I choose you, I draw you, I bring you to myself, I will teach you. You will learn from me. Right In the first century, they're looking at Isaiah 54 as a passage of hope speaking into their very current context. And there's other passages. Jeremiah 31, God says he's going to write his law on people's hearts. Ezekiel 36, God is going to give people a new heart and a new spirit so they can obey the commands of God, so they can follow. There's grumbling. God chooses. God is initiating a new exodus, going to free his people, break the power of sin, evil, wrong, injustice in the world, and bring people to himself. Marion Meyer Thompson, who's a fuller prof, wrote a book, uh, a commentary on John, writes this. The prophets envision a future time when God restores his people, renews their heart and spirit, and becomes their teacher, drawing them to himself so that they live in accordance with God's will and purposes. That prophetic vision comes to fruition in God's drawing people to Jesus. Right? So that's the vision, right, of what's going on in 43 to 45. I know there's a lot of moving pieces, but it'll, it'll get simpler, maybe. And then what Jesus does as he moves forward is he then re-clarifies back to what he talked about last week, saying, hey, I am the bread of life, right? If you come to me, you will experience eternal life. Now, eternal life is measured in both quantity and quality. It's not simply you'll live forever, but that you actually, the quality of the life you experience will increase, right? Unlike the manna, Jesus says, from the first exodus that people ate, but then they died. In this second exodus, as Jesus gathers the people of God, right? The father sends people to him. He gathers them, offers himself as the bread of life. They eat and now will live forever, right? He's making a contrast with the original exodus. And now maybe the most important verse Here it says, verse 51. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, this this statement in particular is what provokes this strong argument, strong, uh, I don't know, goes from grumbling to strong arguing after this. And there's a few reasons. One, in Greek, uh, John has changed language from, hey, you know, I am the bread of the world to now eat my flesh. 
Right? In a Jewish context, Leviticus is very clear about not eating blood. Uh, cannibalism is a no-no. Not that, like, even if you didn't believe in Leviticus, you'd want to eat another human being. But the point being, it's like, wait, what are we doing now? You just said, eat my flesh. It's confusing. Now, we know that in John 1, we know what does the word become? The word becomes flesh. The word takes on a human body. That's what John is alluding to. But you feel a little bad for the people standing there because they're like, what is going on? But then when you combine this idea of the flesh with this idea of Jesus giving himself on the behalf of the world, you have a sacrificial image that Jesus is going to actually sacrifice himself on behalf of the people so that they experience life. All right, one last thing. We also know this is taking place in the context of the Passover. Remember verse 4. This is all Passovers leading up. What happens at the Passover? You have a lamb. This lamb is killed. The blood is put up on the top of the doorway. So the angel of death passes over that household and those people live. John says of Jesus in chapter 1, I think it's 128 or 129, Jesus, you are the lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus is this lamb, this Passover lamb that will give himself on behalf of the people to initiate a new exodus, just like what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt, but again in their time. All right, if you're still following me, this leads now to the second part of the argument. Part two, arguing sharply. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you drink the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, or eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in a synagogue in Capernaum. All right, so this is a really tricky passage. Um, And we have to have a lot of empathy, I think, for their hearers. Because Jesus is referring to two things that haven't happened yet. He's referring to his death and he's still alive, right? He's referring to the Lord's Supper, which he hasn't instituted yet. So they're thinking, what is going on? One of the things Jesus does, though, if we've been around this journey through John, is in chapter, I think it's two, he, he talks about the temple and he says, I'm going to, this temple will be destroyed in three days, or will be destroyed and I'll raise it up in three days, right? And they're thinking, It took us 46 years to build this temple. There's no way you're going to do that. But again, he's referring to his death and resurrection, which they don't know. So it leads to confusion. Chapter 3, he's talking to a guy named Nicodemus. He says, hey, you need to be born again. The dude's like, wait, how am I going to do that? Like, how am I going to enter my mother's womb and be born again? But again, Jesus is talking about the Spirit coming later. Jesus is constantly using these analogies that confuse people so that they continue seeking, so they continue exploring, right? So the questions draw them closer. Now, within the larger context of John 6, it's clear that Jesus is saying something like, 
right? If you eat the bread of life, you remain in him, verse 56, and you will experience eternal life, verse 58. Now, how exactly this gets worked out has been a source of major division throughout church history. So we're going to skip it. Just kidding. (laughs) So what I want to do here at Wellspring, I create a culture where we can lean into these kind of questions, even though I'm pretty confident that in this room, there are people that have very different opinions about how this passage works out. But I want us to be the kind of people that are so focused on Jesus and open to learning that we're able to engage with a diversity of opinions and still love Jesus together and move forward together. Make sense? All right, so there's four general historical interpretations of this passage. Uh, The first is transubstantiation. Um which is a long word, but um, so Aquinas, 13th century, he's a scholastic, a scholar, and he says his basic theory, which becomes the modern adopt, the modern sort of view of the Catholic Church, says this, basically there's accidents and there's essence. Accidents are sort of what's on the surface. Essence is what it really is, okay? So what he says is when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, what happens is the accidents remain the same. It looks like bread, It looks like wine, but the essence is really the physical and real body of Jesus. Physical, real presence of Jesus, okay? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and his physical body is in the blood, or is in the bread, and his physical blood is in the drink, okay? Transubstantiation. Really important to know, okay? 16th century, you have the Reformation, you have Luther, right? Luther's a little frustrated that this view has become sort of the central stance of the Catholic Church. Before that, it wasn't as solidified. There was a little more wiggle room. Uh, So he comes up with this thing called consubstantiation, which is essentially this. You have bread, you have wine, but you, and it's, it's actually bread and wine. Like there's actual bread and wine. But it's also actually sort of in, above, between, throughout, it's actually the literal, physical body of Jesus that is both at the right hand of the Father and and in that bread. So it's actually very similar to transubstantiation, but you have a little bit of, I don't know, there's like both and. It's both bread, wine, both physical body, physical blood. Physical is really important here. Understand? You following me? You're like, man... His sermons are not usually this dense. Sorry about that. If you like it, this is how it is every Sunday. All right. The next one is memorialism. There's a guy named Zwingli. Now, Zwingli is sort of in reaction to Luther and Catholicism is like, hey, you guys, you're getting it all wrong. It's all a symbol. This is just a symbol. There's no real presence of Jesus here. What we're doing is... We're basically bringing the bread and wine. It reminds us of what God did. It's a symbol of what is going on. Make sense? All right. Four. Now we have Calvin. So Calvin in a sort of a more reformed view. Now Calvin's view is actually somewhere, if you imagine transubstantiation and consubstantiation on this side and Zwingli on this side, they're sort of opposites. Calvin is sort of in the middle. What I mean by that is this. Calvin believes that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that there is a real presence of God. But it is not the physical presence of Jesus. 
It is a profound communion that happens with the risen Lord who's at the right hand of the Father via the Holy Spirit. The bread is still bread. The wine is still wine. But there is a profound communion that happens when we take the bread and take the wine. It's not just symbols. There's actually a profound communion that happens via the Holy Spirit with the risen Lord. Make sense? Ish. Now, depending on your background, you might lean towards one of these or the other. Like, I recognize that some of us grew up in a Catholic environment. Some of us grew up in an Anglican environment. Some of us grew up in a Lutheran environment, you know, down the line. Now, obviously, I can't unpack these all theologically right now because there are libraries full of this. Um, What I'll say is this. In eco, in more Presbyterian environments, there tends to be more of an alignment with Calvin's view. And the thing I appreciate about Calvin's view is that it's sort of this trying to take the text seriously. So it's like there is a real communion. Verse 56 says, you know, I remain in them and they remain in me. There's this profound intimacy and communion that happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Calvin really takes that seriously. There is a real encounter that happens. But he also is not taking it as literally as it's literally the physical body of Jesus. For instance, if you're, you know, a grandma and you come over and you see your grandkids, you're like, oh, you're so sweet, I could eat you up, right? You don't actually eat them, but there is this profound encounter that happens. Now, Calvin is sort of the grandma view, right? It's (laughs) making light of something that is sacred. Sorry about that. But I just think there's something about Calvin that I appreciate because he sort of walks this middle ground that I think honors the text, uh, but doesn't undermine the sense of deep and profound communion that happens through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Marian Meyer Thompson says this. She says, Jesus' flesh, both his life and his death, is true food and his blood is true drink. In that, it accomplishes the ends of food and drink. It gives life. Right? Jesus says he will offer his life on behalf of the world to give life to the world. All right, so big picture summary. There's grumbling. God is choosing. This is about God choosing, drawing people to himself. In the midst of that, what happens, right? The Father brings people to Jesus. Jesus then offers himself, his life, his blood, all of who he is on behalf of the world to bring them life, to bring us life. Now, if I was going to translate this now into sort of a practical, how do we actually, how does this make sense in our life today? How does this actually inform the way we live in 21st century peninsula life? I'd say two things. The first is this. The Father draws. You know, one of my experiences of modern life uh, is that we seek for control in everything, right? We, we want to control via technology any number of things. We want to control our schedules. We want to control our time. We want to control our bank accounts. We want to control our families. And I think it seeps into the way we approach the spiritual life. We want to control God and the way we do this God thing. 
For instance, when I first was clueless about God and I asked some people, like, how do I do this? They're like, they basically gave me a few things to do. Okay, read your Bible, attend church, pray. If you do those things, you're on the right track. So I did that. And some days I rocked it. And when I did, when I rocked it, I prayed, I read my Bible, I felt awesome. Verging on proud and self-righteous, maybe cross the line a little bit. And when I sucked, sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said that. When I was not very good, apologize if I offended. When I really dropped the ball, when I really failed, I felt like an utter failure and I had a lot of guilt and shame that I carried with me. So I do this flip-flop between feeling awesome about myself and feeling terrible about myself, all based on my behavior, which couldn't have been farther from the way that I came into the kingdom. So I was not looking for God when God came looking for me. I was on a high school recruiting trip to play football in college. I was approached by this guy who was 6'4 and ripped, who I was going to stay with at the recruiting time. I thought he looked ripped and huge, and I wanted to be ripped and huge. And so he invited me to a Bible study. He was the first Christian I had ever met that was open about his faith. He invited me to go. And I was like, I want to be ripped. I'll go. Right? What happens? I go to this Bible study. It's about John or uh, Mark 4 and the parable of the soils. And I was like intrigued by it. Never been in a Bible study before. Never had any interest. Didn't even know they existed, honestly. I go to the study. I'm intrigued. So when I go back to Claremont to college to play football and do other things like study, I kept going to these different uh, Bible studies. I just kind of kept showing up sort of rambling my way through it. I had no idea what was going on. I just felt like something's happening here. That summer, I end up in this study, studying the gospel of Mark. You know, I read this line. It was just like this line. I was just like, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, you know, whoever, what if, what if you gained the entire world and yet lose your soul? And in that moment, I realized, what am I doing? I walked out of the room and just fell apart in the woods. And in that moment, I experienced the grace and compassion and mercy of Jesus in a way that I never even imagined was possible. I was not looking for God. I did nothing to end up in those woods on that day in the presence of Jesus The Father drew me to himself, brought me to Jesus, and in that moment, I ate the bread of life. And yet, when I sort of come into church environments, often what happens in my experience is we're so focused on what we do for God. You know, do we do all the things we were supposed to do? We check the box, you know. There's nothing wrong with doing things, right? I don't know, maybe you relate to that. Maybe you relate to this feeling of like, you feel proud when you rock it, and you feel like a failure when you don't. This is the thing. The spiritual life was never about what you do for God. From day one, it has always been about what God has done for you. It has always been about what God has done for you. 
The gospel at its core is about the grace of God breaking into the everyday life of human creatures rambling about trying to figure out what they are doing with their lives. The grace of God breaks into the reality of our everyday life and brings life. It was never about what you could do for God. It has always been about God doing something for you, drawing you to himself. And I guess I ask you today, when you come in this morning, where is your heart? Where is your mind? Are you focused on all the things you're doing? Or are you in a place of thanksgiving, saying, God, I am so grateful for all you have done for me. And out of that place of gratitude, out of that place of thankfulness, laying down your life for Jesus and his kingdom, saying, I will never be able to repay the goodness and glory of your presence in my life. Do with my life what you will, but I am just happy to be here. Do you find yourself burnt out? Do you find yourself bitter? Do you find yourself frustrated or feeling like a failure? Because the gospel is about God doing stuff for you, not you doing stuff for God. The Father is the one who draws us to himself. And then what? Jesus says this. I give my life for the life of the world. The Father draws, what happens? The Son sacrifices. We moved over the last few months of celebrating communion once a month to doing it twice a month. Uh, as a whole body, right, coming together to say, hey, we're going to all stand up and walk forward and say, Jesus, you are the center of our life. Not because Jesus was a good moral teacher. Not because he did some miracles. We celebrate communion because God took on human flesh, lived and died for us so that we could experience life, you and me and the world. And we remember that in profound communion with the risen Lord when we break bread and drink wine together. Beasley Murray is a theologian uh, in the Word Biblical Commentary writes this, what we have to do with his flesh and body is not only chew and swallow, but recognize in his crucified body and poured out blood the ground of our life that we hang our faith and hope on the body and blood. Right? Communion is a time we remember that it is not about what we do for God. It is about Jesus' sacrifice for us. So if you come in this morning and you carry guilt, you carry a sense of failure, Jesus died to set you free of that. If you come in today with a sense of shame, things you have done or left undone. Jesus went up on a cross and experienced of shame in first century culture, went outside the gates of Jerusalem and said, I stand with you as I die for those who feel ashamed. For those of you who are oppressed by powers in this world, whether government systems or spiritual systems, we just say Jesus died on the cross to break the powers of this world so that you could be set free. If you come in today feeling like distant from God because you just are not very good at the spiritual life, Paul says in Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for us because we got our act together or because we were smart or because we were somehow faithful. He died for us because he loved us before we did anything for him. 
That's the gospel. You know, when I went to that uh, feast in Ephesus, right, there was this man, this father figure who invited us in. And then we went to the table and the bread is there and through the bread we experience life as a group. What this text is saying is that the Father is inviting us into the party. Jesus is at the center of it. He is the bread of life. And when we eat that bread, we experience life, the life of God who gives himself away so that we can flourish. Our role in the spiritual life is not to do things for God. Our role in the spiritual life is to worship him for what he has done for us. I'm going to invite the team up to lead us in some songs. And it's my hope and my prayer that as we enter worship today, we're able to keep in mind that God has drawn us to this place. No matter where you are at in your journey, God has drawn you here in one way or another. No matter where you're at in your journey, Jesus has laid down his life for you and he offers you life whether you've attended church for the last 50 years or this is your first time in church ever. Jesus died so that the world could experience life and he offers you that life today. Our response is gratefulness. Our response is gratitude. Our response is worship and praise. Let's do that together this morning. God, we ask that you would come God, we ask that you would reveal yourself in profound ways. God, we ask that you would come in ways that we would know again, maybe for the thousandth time, your grace and mercy and compassion. God, that we would in this moment as we sing songs of your praise, remember that you are the center, that you are the one who brings life, that you are the one who rescues, that you are the one who saves. And it is by your body and by your blood that we worship you today. No matter what we brought into the room today, no matter guilt or shame, something we did last night or something we did 20 years ago, Jesus, you will cleanse us, you will forgive us, and you will reconcile us both to ourselves, to you and the body of believers here. God, that we may worship you and know you more. Come, Holy Spirit, be with us.